Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part, it's completely free, a token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, or simply visit the SportMind Hub by Googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to your next episode of the podcast series. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of welcoming Graham Keane, who will be sharing his expertise on the mind and how to optimize performance, especially under pressure. Graham offers valuable insights on how to cultivate the right mindset and emphasizes the importance of self-talk and mental conditioning in his work. His tips are truly remarkable and offer a fresh perspective on how to achieve peak performance. Graham is a business psychologist, former CFO and corporate finance advisor. He has over 20 years of experience advising more than 200 companies on engineering lasting positive change. He now works with entrepreneurs and complex international organizations, delivering enlightened cultures and financial growth. In the past, he has worked with giant brands such as Barclays Bank, Disney, BMW, Sony, and IBM, to name but a few. Graham is also an author, and I'm diving into his insightful book called Positive Leaders, Positive Change. It's well worth a read and gives plenty of practical tips and tools how to train and optimize the mind. Graham cut his teeth in sports psychology, where he honed his skills and expertise working with golf players, including multiple Ryder Cup teams and top individual players in the game. Graham has such a positive energy about him, and you can see why he has been so successful in what he does and teaches. I came away full of energy and raring to go after this podcast. On the show today, we talk about how he was a vanguard of the Martin Seligman School of Positive Psychology. This means he was part of the first 1,000 psychologists globally to get trained and begin to use Martin's groundbreaking methods. We discuss this alongside what positive psychology is and why it can often be misconstrued in modern psychology. We talk a lot about the topic of resilience, what this is, how it forms, and how to maintain it under pressure. Linked closely to this, we talk about confidence as well as a lack of confidence and some useful tools to use in order to grow it. Graham is big into visualization, so we of course hit it off on this subject, and we spoke a lot about different methods we both use. I certainly learned a lot of new useful stuff myself. We close the episode talking about the key behaviors and habits of high performance, and what separates them from the rest. 
he also, with my probing, reflects on his strengths and what has allowed him to make such a positive impact on all those he coaches. To find out more about Graham, please do visit his website, which is www.positiveprofabilitycompany.co.uk or search him out on LinkedIn. I trust you'll get the same amount of positive energy I did with this conversation. So please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Graham Keane. Graham Keane, welcome to the next episode of the podcast series. Really cool to have you here, man. We had a great little offline chat just before we press record. But um, listen, I think always a good start to kick these things off is if you could give like a, a bit of a brief introduction to yourself and some of the work you're currently doing and getting up to. Thanks, Jesse. So um, I my uh, my earlier life, okay, my early uh, commercial life was as an accountant. I've been a CFO of PLCs. I've done a lot of work around mergers and acquisitions. But I... I changed tack very dramatically 25 years ago and became a business psychologist. So my company, which is called the Positive Profitability Company, um, is about helping organizations achieve their full potential in such a way that that, that potential is expressed both as profit and as the well-being of their people. Nice. So we talk about profit and people in harmony. Mm-hmm. And so that's our strap line. And we bring an evidence-based psychological approach to that. So I won't work with any ideas unless they've been, you know, the replicated peer-reviewed research so that we can make the promise to people, this is going to work for you. Mm. Because I think this sector is full of, um, you know, pop psychology, full of um, people whose integrity isn't what yours or mine is, right? So Mm. we have to... um, uh, make sure that we uh, that we're ticking those buttons. I like um, that. Mm. So I mean, currently, I mean, we work with organisations of, of, of a huge range in scale. You know, from companies that have only got a dozen or two people um, in them, right the way through to you know a list of very impressive global brands like um, Accenture and uh, SAP and. People of this, people of this nature. Nice. Currently, currently, a lot of what we're doing is about uh, is around a, a, an idea of mine, which is called ethos, which is conceived of as a wider and more useful definition of culture for an organisation. So it's getting it's getting the cultural values, and not the ones you put on the wall, the ones that actually manifest in how people treat each other. Nice. Yeah. Getting those and the engagement of the people with the the emotional relationship they have with their employer, the company, um, and the uh, leadership values that again are manifest in the leadership behavior to get that little circle rotating in synergy. Mm. So well, I'm, I've got like five cohorts running at the moment personally. But, various various elements of that so we do a lot Amazing. of leadership sales improvement profit improvement is a big big part of what we do engagement talent magnetism but i guess the the, the what i always i'm always interested in because i suppose my financial background i'm always interested in the business case for retaining us and it's about you know it's about making more money, but doing it in a way that you can be proud of because you're also taking care of, of your colleagues and, and everybody. You know, they, they, 
that there used to be this inherited view that you have to decide, am I going to run my business for money or am I going to run my business for people? Mm -hmm. And that's a false dichotomy. Sure, sure. Yeah. Interesting. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, we, we might unpack a little bit so that as as we start to progress. And I think I'm I'm quite quite comfortable saying this, but we got a good mutual friend in Cortland Swan who introduced us. So Cortland's listening. How's it, Cortland? Um, and um, hey, Cort we, yeah, there he is. Um, so again, I met Cortland through a sporting endeavor through squash, and I know you had a bit of a background in sport as well. Could you just unpack what your background in sport was? So I, I, I work primarily um, in, in in golf. So that's an interesting story because before I ran this, before I owned and ran this company, I was a partner in a motivational training company for about three years. Right. And um, we had some interesting clients, one of whom was Jimmy White, the snooker player. Mm. And um, uh, uh, we did, the three of us worked with him. One of the other guys did most of the work with Jimmy. But we worked with him to um, deal with his issues in competition, because those of you that are snooker fans will remember that he was he was like an early man, and he kept getting knocked out of the world championships at a fairly late stage by Stephen Henry, mm -hmm. uh, rec world record holding world champion. <clears throat> and the year that we worked with him, um, he came out in the first round and. Lo and behold, he drew Stephen Henry in the first round. Wow. Like, oh man! Anyone but this is this is this is our a reference site for sports psych. So anyway, uh, Jimmy Kenner and he pasted Stephen Henry eight one eight two nice, nice. Um, just wiped the floor with him, which actually sent poor Stephen into a bit of a decline for a while. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Um, I can't remember exactly the timeline, but I did remember he had a like, big drop off at one point, yeah. and yeah. And then he went into the next round, and he and he, he met. Uh, <laughs> um, he was who was he playing? Yeah, anyway, I, I I bumped into him, or I went to see him in his dressing room halfway through. And he's playing Darren Murphy, I think, and mm -hmm. he said, "How do you think it's going, man, mate? How's it going? It's all right. Do you think it's going all right? How's it going? What do you think?" So I said, "Well, I'm feeling a bit sorry for Darren, uh, to be absolutely <laughs> honest." So, so what's that then, mate? What's that? What's that? What's that? Um, and I said, "Well, you." you you're not playing very well, and you're absolutely pasting him. And he's like, yeah, it's right, it's right. Still, he's not bothered about us. Why would you be bothered about him? Fuck him. You might want to take that last bit out. That's fine. We are allowed swearing on this podcast. We're good with that. <laughs> I thought, that was, oh, wow, that's the same Jimmy White. I didn't know. Because he was a, a delightful. Because of that, because of that great triumph he had, we got a lot of interest. And we got to work with... Um, uh, some uh, world-class golfers, you know, mm -hmm. um, European top 20, world top 20, European top five. Um, and um, and when I set up my own business, I, I um, in April 2000, I contacted the manager of the people that we'd worked with, because I'd worked with about eight pros, one-on-one, -on -one, mm -hmm. helping them keep their mind clear, helping them keep their conscious mind out of the way, so that the you know the meta programs and the muscle memory and all the things you know much more about than I do, yeah, that all of those things could flow freely without them impeding their their, their flow. So we did mm -hmm. a lot of work on that, which was really good fun and and, uh, and lovely to be involved in it. And and just just a little kind of segue there. I'm sure this might or well, I'm not sure, but would this have come in the um, Timothy Galway wrote the inner game of tennis, but he also wrote the inner game of golf. Did you reference Timothy Galway's work? Because I'm quite a big fan of parts of him. 
I did not. No. no. Okay. No, Interesting. No, yeah. no, I didn't. No, I think what what um, um, I mean, Rotella was the man in golf, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So 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 that was uh, that was my, where my inspiration came from. But actually, I was more interested in in the the application of non-specific psychology to the sports arena. So I'm, you know, I'm not, never have been, never will be a sports psychologist, but I do understand about things like, you know, the incredibly small bandwidth of the conscious mind. So you, you really have to make sure that you 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 keep it clear so these meta programs can run and all of that that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And I was also big into the power of visualization. And it was very interesting because at that time, visualization was only really respected within sports psychology. Mm-hmm. It didn't have much of a life outside it. And I remember one of the superstars that we played with, Darren, that we worked with, Darren Clark. Darren was already world famous and amazingly successful. But in the year that he worked with us, um, he like tripled his earnings mm-hmm. um, and you know went to... Uh, I can't remember. I, I can't remember whether it was world or Europe, but it was number three. Right. Because we're talking, you know, 20 years ago now. And it was very interesting because he actually took to the mental side of the game, you know, the, the actively using techniques and disciplines from psychology. Mm-hmm. He took to that like a natural. And indeed, he's co-written a book about it subsequently. Oh, nice. I'll have to check that out. Mm. Yeah. So he did that and that enabled him to take what was already an outstanding career into an even more outstanding. I mean, the man's a legend, isn't he? Actually? Yeah, she's yes. a massive fan of him. Mm. And then uh, about eight years later, I thought, I fancy doing some more golf because I was missing being on the fun side of the ropes. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I contacted um, Darren's manager, a chap called Chubby Chandler, very famous in the in the sport, and said, anything you'd like me to do? And he said, I got the perfect guy for you. And this was a man who I won't name, who had won the silver medal. So he was the most successful amateur, British amateur. Right. Um, And then he went pro. And as he went pro, he was not doing as well. And one of the reasons he wasn't doing as well is that he was, um, Chubby said he was every bit as good a ball striker as Darren. But his 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 um, course management and his discipline and his mm. ability to deliver in competition was was lacking. That's interesting. So yeah. said, see what you can do with him. So I I I, I ran the same program, the same set of interventions exactly as we had done with Darren. And again, it wasn't me that did most of the work with Darren. It was another guy. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, but what I found was that this dude actually, even though he was a world-class ball striker, he wouldn't do the discipline. Really? Do okay. the work that he needed to do on here. He'd do anything he wanted him to do with these and his body, but with his head, he wouldn't do it. Mm. So I, I fired him. I said, really? stop working with him because can't do anything. And because I've always tried to unpack this with because, because again, I'll correct me if I'm wrong, but you will think of this. We can so easily see the output when we make interventions with the grip or the swing or our body movements. We see that the output of the ball or whatever we're trying to do. But actually, when we work in our mind, it's it's all under the hood, isn't it? You know, you can you know it's the, it's the famous Chinese bamboo tree story. The roots are growing beneath the surface, but you can't see them until they break through. So, how do you think? How do you try and sell that idea of you are working on your mind? In my opinion, pretty much all the time, but you're not going to see the output as making interventions in your swing, for example. Well, I think that, that with this guy in question, it was very interesting because, you know, I, I wanted to show the distinction between him and Darren. So Darren 
was good at it and he went from good to great. This guy, eight years later, wouldn't do it. And he was being regularly beaten by lesser players who were doing the who were using sports psychology. And this second guy lost his card. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. He did later come onto it and come back and start winning. But so, we are. so the, the answer to your question about the immediacy of impact is it depends what you're doing. So you you, you mentioned visualization in the mm-hmm. at the top. And I, with this particular individual, he had he developed a, he was incredible. God, he was long. He was like he was it was it was like working with a you must do this all the time with what you do and you're working with world-class athletes I, they just make me feel humble man yeah it's mind-blowing isn't it, <laughs> it's, it is. and this guy could hit it literally forever and but he developed a late hook and um it was costing him so i did i i ran a we we I said, let's meet and find a course where the letters work together. And that was great fun. I was walking into a golf club full of snooty people. And the guy said, <laughs> hello, my name is blah, blah. Have mm. you got somewhere we can work? And it was like he was the king. Interesting. That's they amazing. Just, so we got, we, we, they, they, they gave us this. So we placed uh, an umbrella 300 yards out. And I said, just drive at it. Okay. He, he wasn't driving towards it. He flew it every single drive no ways okay yeah we flew it and and sure enough it was hooking so i i and i suspected and it turned out to be right that what he was doing he was as he was striking the ball he was trying to create correct his hook okay which you know better than Mm. i made it worse paralysis by analysis classic yep (laughs) there you go so i got him to just visualize the flight of the the ball he wanted while he was actually um making this trick so just nothing else in your mind just the flight you want to see and he the, the the first time he did that he like half corrected it and so i knew what had happened but i asked him to tell me and he said well he was able to keep just the flight of the ball in his mind for a, for a while but then he started thinking as he came through something mm-hmm. about his hands mm-hmm. so i said okay well so then we did a, f- a few more times and i had him visualizing that perfect flight um with his eyes closed while he was actually striking the ball no ways which which he did we did it about four or five times i said right let's try it again open your eyes and fly and i i kid you not it it went like a laser beam straight as anything and flew the um flew that i i don't know how i don't know but it, it looked like it was 50 feet higher than the, mm. and the umbrella as it went over but, but the thing but is he, never... he's yeah he's got the innate kind of yeah. you know neural pathways and kind of you know nerves in his hands he'd done it you know and what sounds like you got him to do was get out of his own way right he was like kind of it's it's within you we need to massage that to the surface right so that that's what i'm hearing you say that's exactly what happened mm. nice so sometimes that. sometimes the right psychological intervention has immediate results. Mm-hmm. But then if you're talking about building things like resilience, um, I don't know if you do any, any, any work with resilience visualization where you teach people how to handle it when they find themselves 
uh, under extreme pressure. Well, yeah, for, for me, I actually borrow quite a bit. I, I love Stoic philosophy and they talk about, um, yeah. you know, predict the worst outcome. So when it arrives, you take away its power and, and this whole field of, I suppose, negative visualization, you, you, a lot of the players I've worked with, they visualizing being, you know, we'll use a squash example, starting, but going seven love down in the first game, games to 11. And they visualize, right, I'm there. I, that's happened. I've had a perfect warm up, but I'm seven love down. What's my solution to this problem? And and there's a lot of these plays. And bizarrely enough, when I was taught visualization about 20 years ago as an athlete, it was completely opposite. It was all about um, visualizing holding the trophy above your head, visualizing success, visualizing the best possible outcome. But there was none of this almost more difficult visualization going, actually, let's get the problem and the solution right. Um, is that what you're getting at there? It is. I think there are, and I, I, I know I'm talking to an expert here, but I'll pretend you're not. No, please, no. <laughs> but I know you are. No, no, no. There are so on. many different ways of, there are so many different visualization techniques, aren't there? Mm -hmm. So, so, uh, and I, we all have our names for them. So the, the lifting the trophy thing, which is an outcome visualization, I teach it as endpoint visualization. And it's a it's a great, it, its role is to engage your full psychological power towards a goal, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's not going to help anybody with resilience. It's not going to help them with fixing a, a fault that's crept into their swing or something like that. So I call that rehearsal visualization. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and uh, I think that's a fairly widely used term, isn't it? So yep. the, yeah, yeah. That sort of thing, um, but the the but the resilience visualization of getting somebody for me, in when I was working in golf, it was all about what happens to a person when for the first time in their life they walk onto the 18th green and they've got to sink a 20 foot putt for their first ever win. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens is they fall apart. Mm -hmm. um, their 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 hands that they can't control their body or anything because they've never been there before. You know, we, we all know the stories of people who don't pull that off. So for me, the, that that visualization was all about walking onto the green and and experiencing a, a psychological transition as you step onto the green, which is all about calmness, confidence, self belief. So that so that when they do experience that for the first time ever, it feels like it's something they've done a hundred times before. Exactly. Is yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that the, the word that I tend to use a lot now. It's getting familiar with the situation. Run those scenarios. Yeah. Run those plays. It's like you make a cup of tea in your in your kitchen. It's like yeah. you know how to do it. You wake up. You make your cup of tea. Right when you're at that clutch moment of a big event and a big you know penalty, whatever it may be, have you become familiar with that situation? Bring in the emotions. At, you know, I was actually talking to one um, world number one squash player, and he talked about when he's doing it, he brings his emotions into it. He's actually sweating and he's feeling nervous and he's sitting there visualizing like this really, really deep emotional thing. And I, I thought that was brilliant to hear that the emotions are a big part of it. And I've started to try to get my players using that now as well. So, so I now work in the world of commerce and industry. So the, so these resilience techniques are, you know, how do you, you are, you are pitching for the biggest contract in your life for a career-making contract. That's the sort of scenario I, I use it for there. Mm. But it's interesting what you said about emotion because I, I use, in what I do professionally now, I use quite a lot of uh, neurobiology. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things about that is the impact of emotion on the power of visualization. So are you personally familiar with neuroplasticity? 
love a bit of new like uh, yeah, the myelin sheaths and all that type of stuff i love a bit okay. of talk on this <laughs> brilliant so the, the 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 way i simplify it for people is that is that um every thought you ever take and every action you ever execute happens when a particular neural 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 pathway fires and so you want to get the neural pathways that you want to be your default way of being you want them to be to be absolutely dominant so one of the ways of accelerating the improvement you get from things like repetition visualization self-talk scripts mm -hmm. um, is to make sure that you bring a lot of emotion to it because what happens is that emotion floods the brains and neurotransmitters and neurotransmitters are an essential part uh, for those people i know you know for those people who don't know what neurotransmitters do is they carry electrical impulses across the synaptic gap which is part of how these new pathways form and become dominant so if whenever you are trying to create a new pathway through visualization you bring your emotion to bear then the pathway forms more quickly and forms more strongly more quickly because the object is to have them stronger than any other possible pathway in relation to what you're trying to do love that. so that's why you're and i i love i love the story you've just told because it so one of my guys uses emotion when he's visualizing how good is he oh world number one <laughs> exactly. Okay. That's not a coincidence. Exactly. Else is exactly. Listening. That is not a coincidence. There we go. There's there's some of the secret sauce people can sprinkle on their visualizations with that, totally. which is cool. And I just just to expand a bit on your analogy there, um, you know, it's and it's a bit of a I say cheesy thing, but Hebb's law neurons that fire together, wire together. I quite like that because that, I like that, that. yeah, it's quite a cool little thing there. But um, the little analogy I use also is 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 your neural pathway a backcountry road with potholes and overgrown with things, or is it a super highway? You know, which one are you going to start to accelerate more of? And if you're having the negative thoughts and the kind of the bad self-talk and the bad body language, you're you're highlighting the highway that's going to be of a negative nature. The car's going to want to go down faster down that highway. So which highway are you wanting to kind of develop? You know, so anyway, it's my my little kind of side notes on that. But yeah, that's powerful stuff, isn't it? I, you know, by this time next week, that'll be my idea. <laughs> and that's a steal with pride, Graham. That's a steal with pride. That's really. I, anyway. I, I never would really. But that's just, a, just a, my way of expressing a compliment. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. Very kind of you. Um, listen, we're going to take such cool little bits. And one of the big themes I do want to unpack today with you is performance psychology and the idea of how we get people, whether they're athletes, business execs, even if, you know, it's a husband and wife at home, like it's kind of the performance environment, how we can get the best out of ourselves. But just before we go down that little rabbit hole, and we've already touched on a few things, and I will come back to parts of visualization, I think. Um, Martin Seligman has been a big influence on you, I believe. And, and I've read quite a bit around his work. I've interviewed a couple of other people who really believe in Martin Seligman. What can you unpack and how can you help us understand his work and how it's been an influence on you as well? So you can edit out if I say too much. I can talk about Marty for a long time. Call him Marty. Marty, there you go, buddy. <laughs> it's, it's, he's so not a buddy, but I have actually met him once. Um, so in 1995, he was in his garden. You know this story? And nope. he was this five-year-old daughter called Nikki. Yeah. And she said, she was obviously a prodigious child. And she said, Daddy, do you remember how last year I had to learn how to stop whining? Do you know this tale? Yep, I do. Yep, I, it's, kind of, so, it's quite good. Yeah. So, so he got called out for being a grouch by his daughter and it made him reflect and 
on not only himself, but on his colleagues in the psychology profession. He was arguably the most eminent psychologist in the world at this time. He's president of the American Psychological Association. He'd just been voted one of the six most important psychologists of all time. So there's Freud, Jung, Seligman. I incredible, mean, incredible. Um, and he he thinks on a very he thinks on a global scale. Uh, he's an he is an extraordinary human, and um, and he decided that that what had happened had happened insidiously, so we hadn't noticed it. But psychology, which was founded in the the late nineteenth century by people like you know William James, the brother of Henry James, the playwright. Um, was all about uh, human possibility, human potential, human fulfillment, had become hijacked by Freud's interest in mental illness. And um, and so it had become a sort of negative side of the coin-focused profession. And he said, yeah, I'm a pessimist. All my colleagues are pessimists. Let's change that. So he made a, he made a decision to be, he was currently one of the world experts on current on clinical depression. He made a decision to become the world expert on happiness. And folks <laughs> out there listening, if you've heard anything in the last twenty five years about happiness in the public world place, that started when Nikki called her dad a grumpy man. Brilliant, um, because he's the guy that started everything. And after, and you know, because of who was, everybody else got interested in it. Now every major university in the world has a positive psychology or applied positive psychology department. It's mm -hmm. exploded. It's 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 everywhere, and it's added so much to uh, to the quality quality of, of life. Yeah. Um, the in about two thousand and three, he decided that there was enough of a body of knowledge now to start actually changing the profession. And the way he did that was to train a thousand psychologists worldwide um, in the first 18 months. Um, and he called us the vanguard. <laughs> and I was one of the I was in the first vanguard class of 300. I love that. So I'm one of the first five positive psychologists, selling on positive psychologists in the UK. That's incredible. It's, wow. Wow. Just... And, and 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 positive psychology let's just dig into that a little bit and again thank you for sharing that story that's that's incredible and what an honor to be asked by him and you know i'm sure you you learned so much that we could uh, just have a whole podcast on probably like your you know your first meeting with him but um it, it's like sam torrance I love him. <laughs> <laughs> there we go another, another fanboy drop it i love it <laughs> yeah, i'm useless um, so <laughs> The, you said it earlier because there is there is quite a lot of woo woo out there about positive psychology. You know, just just you know, I, I I can't stand this empty positivity. You know, get out of bed and punch the air like I'm the greatest. And there's maybe a part of it every so often, but can you just help me and maybe the listeners understand the real impact of positive psychology? Not this like maybe wishy washy woo woo stuff that could be interpreted quite wrong. And I know a lot of people peddle that out quite a lot at the same time. So could you help unpack that for a sec? So there's a big difference between positive thinking and positive psychology. Positive thinking is incredibly helpful and valuable and useful, but positive thinking as a movement um, uh, is discredited because it had so many bogus claims. The first bogus claim is that anybody can be anything if you're positive enough. That is just a big lie. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> and and so I, it's why I resisted ever becoming involved. I was 
bullied into getting involved in this mm. by my then wife and a couple of our friends who said, you need some of this stuff. And they were yeah. right at the time. <laughs> um, uh, so that's that's positive thinking. Positive psychology is actually the science of well-being. So the, so the positive psychology is a scientific discipline. It's also a movement. The objective of the movement, I love, and I give it, I quote, improve human well-being. Okay. That's okay. And that's well-being as a as a, a defined term within science, not um the airy fairy, wishy-washy ideas of well-being that that most people conceive of it as in, in fairness. Um so positive psychology is is all about what is has now become uh what is the measurable recordable repeatable impact on things like interpersonal effectiveness things like quality of life things like achieving your potential things like building resilience what it what is the actual scientifically proven impact of that mm, so nice. it is the true science of positivity if you like and positivity is universally beneficial um optimism is universally beneficial provided it's grounded mm -hmm. <laughs> and in a, a, a realistic realm as well yeah yeah i don't like the r word but i'll let you get away with okay. it <laughs> well, <laughs> why is that explain that that's interesting uh, because uh, uh, because if you ask uh, when i'm asking a new class uh, you know hands up if you're a pessimist hands up if you're an op optimist hands up if you're a realist mm -hmm. when they put their hands up i say look at them everybody these are the pessimists in denial <laughs> okay i like that i like that's, that interesting yeah, yeah. Like. okay cool yeah, so, <laughs> so yeah actually so just so just to go back a sec i think the word i was looking for which i'm glad you picked up on that was actually like more rationality not realism rationale and, and i'm quite interested in rational and irrational thought patterns that could be a little rabbit hole we could go down but i don't want to disturb your flow but rationality and irrationality for me are quite interesting topics as well so I think I, I use the phrase grounded optimism, so keeping one foot on the ground. So I talk about expecting the best and preparing for the rest. There's I, a, which, I mean, again, that comes to your work, I would imagine. Yeah. And, and, and there's an overlap there, yeah. So that's, so, so uh, okay, anecdote. Um, one of the major contributions of positive psychology has been into understanding how human beings build resilience. We used to think that, that that happened by surviving hardship. And that's definitely a factor, but it's the minor factor. It's 20% of the equation. Mm -hmm. The 80% of the equation is that whenever a human being is experiencing a positive emotional state, contentment, excitement, joy, happiness, well-being, um, feeling loved, feeling respected, feeling valued, Whenever you're in that sort of state, there are synaptic and chemical changes that go on in the brain that manifest as increased resilience, right? So that's a lot of work in positive psychology on resilience, which came to the attention of the commanding general of the US Army, who in 2008 commissioned Seligman himself to design a program to improve the resilience of uh, soldiers in the US Army, there are one and a half million people. Because people come back from the battleground, but battle is trauma, okay? There's no, no other, battle is trauma. 
They come back from battle either with post-traumatic growth or post-traumatic stress, mm. sometimes disorder. Mm. And what makes the difference, because this is what they consulted Sullivan on, what makes the difference is resilience. So since 2008, every NCO in the US Army is a trained positive psychology coach. That's incredible. Sent two, and and that, that went into operation in 2009. 2009. So um, clinical depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and a few other things have all halved since this training began that's a, that's amazing mm. so that's mm. the difference between substantiated real science mm. and empty claims and but, uh, yeah i love what you're saying there because it, it, it yeah it, it, you know it's scientific it can be validated it, it i don't correct me if i'm wrong but it can be data driven and as you were speaking there I'm, qu I'm quite interested again i don't know if you know i'm putting you on the spot here but data driven you know, whatever, is it graphs? Like, how can you measure resilience? How can you measure well-being? Like, like, have you got any thoughts on that? Because I don't know how myself, but I think that's quite an interesting topic. So I think, I think measuring those things is, uh, is always, um, takes a lot of ingenuity and a lot of understanding. Hmm. One of the, one of the reasons that somebody gets to be a professor, a research professor in the human sciences is because they're incredibly good at designing ways of measuring and testing these things okay. so that they can co-vary out um, complicating factors that you don't want in the way so that you can distinguish between whether two things are associated or whether one of them actually causes the other sure. causality so effect. Um, yeah mm. so i mean i think that's part of the purpose of, of, of defining well-being so well-being has a definition it's called the perma definition it's mm. a, an acronym which mm. you're probably familiar with yeah so seligman came up with that didn't he yeah he did yeah mm. and and it's been it's been embraced by people so you know the first step towards that i mean we don't we don't measure well-being the work that i do now commercially we don't measure well-being but we do measure some of the manifestations of it so for instance if you are if you are uh, we we have a, a metric that we always use um to assess the ethos of leadership engagement um and culture um in an organization and you can read in that you can see whether the well-being of people mm. is is valued promoted high or not nice so you can do that but actually i would not want to be um commissioned to design a study <laughs> to quantify well-being Jeez, um, i know so, where would you where would you start eh? but i, I said there's, there's there's you know I, I always ask i always ask people to measure me on how much does sales improve how much does profit improve that's there we go I, there we go and um, that's yeah you can kind of nicely get that in a good spreadsheet with a couple of graphs going on in there you can. and then and then if you want to know how the well-being is improved if if you need to ask whether it's improved, it hasn't improved, mm. but you will see it in your people and they will tell you. Love that. Tell you how much better they feel, which, Love is, that. Mm. which is what we do. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, so Graham, listen, I'm, I'm very big on trying to have some tools and have some, you know, kind of signposts for people. So I'd like to get into a little bit of the weeds with you in a couple of these little topics, which, you know, come up very often in my line of work. I'm sure they do in your line of work. So you've mentioned resilience. So we're going to stay with that for a little bit longer. And I suppose the question I have for you is, is again, there probably are many, but you might think of your kind of top high end ones, any key tools or techniques that help someone be more resilient and maintain that mindset when the pressure is on. So they're in that pressure environment. They, they, they're there, they're performing in sport, in the workplace. 
how do they maintain resilience through that? I'm sure there's a bit of training before that, of course, but then once they're in that pressure, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think what, one of the things I wanted to say earlier is that is that there's a big difference between sports psychology and the sort of psychology I do now, okay. which is relevant to your question, which is one of the things you've got to be good at is getting people to deliver their full 100% for a few seconds or a few hours, right? Yep, totally. Yep, really so, zoomed in, yep. Yeah, so, so that, that, you know, consciously engaging super high performance for a short burst. That's not what I do. That doesn't add much value in business. Mm. So what I do in business is I say, okay, let's take your set level and upgrade that. Okay. I like that. Mm. Right. So, so we, we, I know you also do in sport, but, but, but that's, that's all that we, that's everything that we, that we need to do. So my approach to this is that whenever you try to use your conscious mind to deliver a set of behaviors and thinking that doesn't come naturally to you, whenever you do that, it's going to fail, mm. right? So what we have to do is we have to make sure that the changes are made at a deeper unconscious level. So I'm very big into the self-concept, right? The self-concept as a psychological um, construct, which is about what actually drives our behavior from minute to minute. So, and the way that you bring about changes in the self-concept is through conditioning, okay? This is, cogn this, this is now cognitive behavioral psychology, mm -hmm. okay? So, um, so in terms of how do you help somebody be resilient in the moment and maintain it, okay? Um, I'm much more about, let us show you how to, to achieve your potential for resilience in preparation, so it's there as a set thing. Yeah. In terms of giving people techniques to reach for in extremis, that's what that's more you than me, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. But 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 all of this comes from foundational mental strength or foundational resilience. It, you know, a lot of you know, people yeah. that come to me and they go, Oh, you know, I've just I've, I've these last few months, I just I can't when I can't really kind of, you know, get myself over the line, give me your magic sauce. Like kind of they booking for one or two sessions and they're like, give me mental toughness. And I'm like, okay, let's kind of strip back and go like, okay, so what are your thoughts, actions, behaviors on a daily, weekly, monthly process? Like, like which, which handle are you picking up? Are you picking up the handle that's going to make it slightly easier or the handle that's going to make it worse? And it's kind of going right. Like, like we need to strip that back. So when you step into your performance environment, it's not like a massive leap into that. It's just a natural step transition. That That's my thoughts on it. So you're really interested in the self-taught, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's where we overlap very strongly. Mm, okay. So, but the, the, the other answer question was, how, how can we help people build their build their resilience? It's, it is, how, so how do you condition yourself to be more positive? If, if a person can move them, okay, so explanatory style is what is the term psychologists use for describing the spectrum between pessimism and optimism. Where one is on the explanatory style can be moved through this process of conditioning. As a person moves themselves towards the optimistic end of the explanatory style, they will spend more time in positive states. They therefore become more resilient. So the question is, how do you move yourself along that spectrum? Mm -hmm. And the answer is by 
forgetting about the outputs, i.e. how do you behave, and focusing completely on the inputs. So I have this little acronym PIPO, P-I-P-O, positives in, positives out. So if somebody wants to become more resilient, increase the amount of inputs to their brain which are positive, decrease the inputs to their brain that are positive, that, that are negative. negative. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and then and you will naturally move up, up the spectrum towards a positive end and you will become more resilient. It's as simple as that. Yep. And that, that is the complete solution. Mm -hmm. um, doing it is not necessarily easy. No. Well, my follow-up to this, which is LinkedIn, is when someone has a genuine lack of confidence, you know, their 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 outputs have have just basically shown them they are they they're not they're not getting it right. And even if they they believe that their inputs <clears throat> have been of that positive nature, but the data of their outputs, their results, their performances, their, their metrics, their numbers are still showing them not right. And then their confidence in what they're doing, their confidence in their processes are, are becoming eroded. So I'm interested to know how to address that because that for me comes up quite often in, in my work as well. So I'm sure you're very good at answering. But you know, my brother is a lawyer, and he says, "Never ask a question you don't know the answer to." <laughs> you're good at this. Um, so um, so um, uh, the, the 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 thing that we need to get people to do in that situation is to learn how to reframe, and and when you're looking at reframing a situation which is very recalcitrant, which is seem is intransigent seems incapable of reframing to use a technique called disputation so that uh, so you'll be well into that again that is a that's a cp cbt well it's it's so funny um dr martin turner who's really big in the rebt field um and that's why i like the rationally rational i kind of discovered him a few months ago and had a great chat with him and disputing came up quite a lot and since then i've gone down a rabbit hole so please yeah. keep unpacking it for me so uh, disputation. The, 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 the Sullivan has his own version, which is which is a bit gadgety, girty. So I, it's cute and it's clever, but I'm not going to use that one. It's basically it's basically this: when you've got when you're facing a situation that is triggering some sort of negative emotion or some underperformance um, within you, uh, you're going to have beliefs about the situation, and you're going to have beliefs about the consequences of the situation. And disputation is about using uh, rational thought, using research, using finding different ways of thinking about things to unpick, first of all, the beliefs, and secondly, to unpick your beliefs about the consequences thereof. Now, as you go through that process of just looking and say, well, I believe that this situation is dangerous. Okay, let me dispute that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's not dangerous. The worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to play a bad shot. Exactly. The worst thing that's going to happen is I'm not, not going to get promotion. That's not danger. And so mm, on. And I talk about that more in my book. I should have been holding my book. Well, funny you say that. I've, I've, I've been, I got your book a couple of weeks ago and I've oh, kind of looked man. through a few chapters already. I haven't had time to really dive into it, but I had my highlights of pen and was going through little key bits to make some of these questions as well. So. Thank you for the 40 pence royalties. Thank you. Sure. There we go. Brilliant. <laughs> Riley um, so, man. Riley so. So disputations in there. Perfect. Amazing. Um, and yeah, um, it's um, and again, obviously it takes someone who's like yourself, like me, like one step removed from that emotion of of the 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 person, the athlete, the individual uh, that becomes so entrenched in it. I was gonna say that we, you know, we're talking about resilience visualization. Mm -hmm. 
I, I, I always say to people, don't do it unless you're supervised. So you teach your guys how to do it, right? So yeah, yeah, hundred percent. You yeah, yeah. really walk them through it. I've again, really yeah. nerdy, but I have like little voice recordings and kind of send them little kind of clips. If I can't see them kind of one-to-one stuff, you know, but th- that's something like way down the line after you've really got to know them and really know that there's the dark side of visualization, but actually it's yeah. a real positive thing on the other side of it. It is. It's a fabulously powerful technique. But for listeners, the, the the reason for this is if you attempt to rehearse a visualization and you don't get it right, you will make the thing worse. Yeah, yeah. So Those neural that. pathways get stronger for that, don't they? It's exactly that. So, exactly. Uh, yeah, I love that. And it's that. Have you come across much of um, Andrew Huberman? Um, have you heard of I- him? He's, I have uh, not. I'll send I might you know his work, but I don't know him. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a professor of psychology at Stanford. But um, he's okay. about, about a year ago he started running these podcasts. But it's all about the neuroscience of 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 everything. Like he did a whole month on sleep. He did a whole month on um, neuroplasticity. But he goes really sciencey. But he then gives you the tools of how to leverage this. It's brilliant. It's like he talks about dopamine, acetylcholine, all these chemicals that get oh, yeah, released yeah. in your brain for. Um, for increasing neuroplasticity, he talks about the reach and fail state. So when you when you get to something that you find difficult, you need to stay at it for anywhere between seven and twenty minutes, and it releases these chemicals. Then in the offline learning, in the next kind of anywhere between two to six days, your brain's really open and more plastic. Anyway, I'm nerding out with him. He is incredible. His work is phenomenal. I'm, I I don't know him, and I'm mm. really. He's, I'm excited to have learned about him. Yeah, Huberman. again, so Andrew Huberman, he, he, it's called the Huberman Lab on Spotify. I'll, I'll definitely send you a link to this afterwards. Um, it's it's my most easily kind of referred to, um, you know, podcast. But he just goes down so many interesting rabbit holes. Um, again, like, you know, all about like kind of what happens in the brain, all the neuroscience of it and tools to leverage it. So, yeah, he's been a, a big influence on some of the some of the stuff I'm trying to do as well. Exactly. Yeah, I look awesome. forward to looking at that. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm I'm interested, um, you know, Graham, and this is maybe something that comes up a lot in in your work as well. Imposter syndrome. So thoughts about imposter syndrome because you've got that person going for that job promotion, or they might might be in a senior position, and they're kind of going, "Whoa, whoa we've got an athlete that goes, am I really that good?" And and there's these self doubts come in. So thoughts on where imposter syndrome maybe comes from, but ideally thoughts on how to readdress the balance with it. So I'm riffing here because I'm not an expert. Okay, let's talk. Uh, That's what I love. And, and um, I, I don't know to what extent a clinical psychologist would say it's a real thing mm-hmm. and to what extent it's just a convenient label for lack of self-confidence. Um, I, 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 I think it's an unhelpful label mm-hmm. because um, if you think of the self-talk implications of it, it's what I call a snake. It's a snake word. Because whenever you whenever you say I think I've got imposter sy- syndrome, you are conditioning yourself into feeling like you're an imposter, so you're undermining your own self confidence. So I I dislike it as a phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, it's naming it's naming um, a condition rather than naming a solution. So I would always rather name things in terms of the of the solution. Mm-hmm. But um, but what seems obvious to me is that it is the product of self-doubt and lack of self-belief that that comes from negative rumination so um you know analysis is a very valuable tool but but like many things that add value when you take them to excess they become destructive Mm -hmm. so analysis actually means picking apart doesn't it it does yeah reducing Mm -hmm. to its component parts well if you start analyzing your self-confidence you pick it apart 
Mm -hmm. yeah, so I think, that, I think that um, you know more about this than, than I do, but I remember one of the things that Rotella says about your performance in golf is that, you know, every now and then you're out there and everything you do seems to work and you just end up with a score that's 10 strokes better than, than normal and you think, wow, that was amazing. Yeah, that's your actual game. Right. And and imposter syndrome, if it is a thing, causes people to believe that that's not their real game, that the game that they are showing that, you know, making it through to the quarterfinals this time is not who they really are. What am I doing here? Hmm. Rather than and I think it comes from a reluctance to um, self-praise. Interesting. I yeah, mean, yeah. I meet that a lot. The people, people, people who are not particularly positive, and people who are not particularly high in the self-esteem department, find taking compliments and giving self-compliments immensely challenging. Mm, that's really interesting. So, mm. so, so I think it's it's about you know we we all we were talking about conditioning earlier and how that delivers your set level of performance in every area mm -hmm. so we all have this monologue that goes on this monologue that goes on in here all of the time if you've got a dialogue you need help but if you've got a monologue going on right um about uh me and who i am and what i'm like and how i'm experiencing this and what did i think of that thing that i did and was that good do they like me that that whole thing going on all the time that is a very big, arguably the biggest part of our conditioning. Mm. And it's that inner voice that um, very often causes people to doubt their own abilities. But I mean, my, my, my actual number one piece of advice about that syndrome, if you believe you've got it, is to stop naming it. Perfect. Good. Well, hopefully, yeah, we give anyone listening, we can kind of start to cut under that one a little bit too much. But what you started to say there, um, the ego comes into my mind. You know, obviously, um, Freud's work on the ego, Ed's super ego, that might be something to talk about. Perfectionism also maybe comes into there a little bit because do perfectionists, don't they, maybe they don't want the praise or like the praise just feels false because they're always trying to be better and better. Um, and also maybe a little bit of Carol Dweck growth and fixed mindset might come into that a little bit that I really love the, you know, the, the, the power of the growth mindset rather than the fixed mindset where you, you fear failure, you fear what other people think of you, you, you know, you, you're so worried about validation from others, you know, so I've kind of laid on a bit of a buffet table there for you, Graham, but also in, in intertwined in that is maybe a little bit of self-talk. And, and I do want to unpack that with you a little bit. Um, what's popping in your mind with all those little things that I've just kind of pulled out um, there. <laughs> I'm, 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 a simplifier and I'm into modern proven replicator research. So the first thing that pops into my mind is ego id superego Bennett. Forget okay. about it. Mm -hmm. It's a hundred years ago. It's it's a it's a superseded model of the mind. Um the mind is much, much simpler than that, and it doesn't have any dark bits. Okay, it doesn't have any part. There's no part of the mind that is inherently dark. The mind is the self concept is what makes us who we are. And that is basically a set of knowledge that you have about yourself that has been formed from everything you've ever experienced and how you react to that. And people and the un and the unconscious is where the self concept lives. So you cannot 
access directly the self-concept through your conscious mind because all sorts of things get in the way like what should I be like rather than what I'm like what do I want to be like rather than what I am like so there's a lot of power in the whole idea of the self. So that's the, the first thing that comes through to me is let's let's be thoroughly modern about it. And it and it, it really is, you know, if I'm doing my doing my simplify thing, it really is incredibly simple, all of these things, which is that if if somebody is manifesting a behavior that's associated with low self-esteem, uh, which would be um rather counterintuitively for some, but never for me. Arrogance is a low self-esteem behavior. Mm. Being arrogant, uh, if people are showing a lack of self-confidence, if people are doubting that they're that what they're currently experiencing is who they are and what they deserve, if those things are going on, it's about self-esteem, and that that is because we have been we have not been building our own sense of wholesome self-worth. We have not been praising ourselves. We have not been objective about the good things about us. We have been going very much to the negative side, and that destroys self-esteem. And one of the things about such statements is that those, those statements don't land terribly well with the people that need to hear them most. Because if you're if, if somebody is really suffering in the self-esteem department, they're probably unhappy. Um, they're, they're probably disappointed. They're probably experiencing high levels of stress and challenge. They're, they may be experiencing what's called learned helplessness, mm -hmm. which is a feeling that, as you know, that you can't affect your outcomes. And to have some smug, um, uh, middle-aged, white, Anglo-Saxon <laughs> male tell you it's very simple and straightforward um, uh, is... Um, <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> yeah no no good but it but what it is is that if, if that's what's happening it, it genuinely is about an accumulation of inputs that have been unhelpful mm. and you will find that if you random listener if you are in this situation you will find that if you start celebrating your successes um internally if you start praising yourself internally you don't have to become the sort of dick that self-praises in front of everybody else exactly. that's not necessary it's about what goes on in here mm -hmm. private between you and yourself if you start making that more you will find that your self-esteem will improve and you will start to feel better if you're unable to do that on your own then you need help go yep. see a counselor and the counselor i would suggest you see would be a positive psychologist if you can find one they're not common um, second best to that is a cognitive behavioral ther therapist. Mm -hmm. um, specifically for this one, I would not recommend psychodynamics or psychoanalysis. Okay, yeah. Work in a, work in a slightly different way. And also, mm -hmm. it's only the most modern and enlightened of them that understand neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, love it. And what I like about it, I just want to unpack one little thing there about self praise. And, and this, again, just touches very briefly on Carol Dweck's work where. She found, you know, children that started developing more of a growth mindset were were ones that were praised on the effort, their strategies, their perseverance. And the ones that started to get more towards a fixed mindset were praised on the outcome, on how talented they were, how brilliant they were. So in my mind, we can't rely on other people praising us. We've got to go, we've got to take ownership of, of our self-praise, but making sure personally that the self-praises on your effort strategies and processes. If the outcomes are the outcomes, great. That's a little bit of nice frosting on the cake. 
but actually the real nuts and bolts of how you performed your outcomes or sorry, how you performed your processes on a daily basis because you have 100% control over that. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, that resonates so strongly. I think that's a really powerful point, and I hope everybody listened to that very carefully because it's right at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it. It's obviously related to and it immediately triggered in me the difference between process performance and outcome goals, right? Of course, yeah. So, uh, the thing about an outcome goal or uh, outcome related self praise is that if you set yourself an outcome, as soon as you start to believe you're not going to achieve it, it stops being something that motivates and makes you feel good and turns into something that beats you up, makes you feel like a failure. 100%. It's actually yeah. really funny you mentioned. I, I just literally finished one of my blogs on that exact. I was kind of unpacking, again, right. p- yeah, parts of this exact thing that yeah. the more I was told to visualize the success, the outcome, the trophy, the more that I became desperate for the win. And when I didn't get the win, I started spiraling into this like like yeah. real depressive I'm state. No Be- yeah, yeah, yeah. And and my whole identity and self worth was so just wrapped up in the outcome yeah. you know and i didn't have initially the right people to help me at the time and i think they were trying to do it for the right reason but they just weren't the right people and yeah since then it's been like wow like if you if you only so attached to the outcome and your talent of getting there it becomes the biggest burden like you said doesn't it so if you think of the great sporting turnarounds um you can probably give better examples than than i can but you think if you think about about um, a golfer halfway through round one is 10 over par, which is like the biggest disaster they could ever ima- imagine. If their only goal is to win the tournament, it, it's time to give up, okay? Yeah. Yeah. But if they have if they have goals about the process and the level of performance they bring, those are still intact. And it's the people who have strong process and performance goals who then go on to do the amazing turnarounds and end up winning after mm-hmm. all. That, exactly that was one that. trap I had about visualization. The other trap I had about visualization, about outcome visualization, is the other end of the scale. Have you come across this? This is this is where where outcome or endpoint visualization can lead to um, self delusion. Hmm. So there are there is a significant, uh, I think, minority of people. I don't know the I don't know the science of that. But there are a lot of people, let's put it that way, who um, are talented visualizers and they get so rewarded by visualizing the outcomes they're seeking that they don't actually bother to do anything about achieving it. <laughs> they don't execute on the things they, they the, the steps to get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they, they just because three times a day they're living the life of their dreams and that's fine for them. Wow. It's not a conscious decision that they yeah. take. It's just that that's the way they work. So that's why we always say, look, you, you, you need to have goals for your outcomes. Of course you do, but you need process and performance goals. And you also need actions. So that's another. So the, so the way I put it together is that is that um, the outcome is endpoint visualization, outcome visualization. The journey there is self-talk scripts. It is rehearsal visualization. It's process and performance goals. Mm-hmm. And that's a, the good, but you, and you need it all. You do, yeah, and, and maybe in like there's different. I like to think about things as different levers or dials. Sometimes you need to pull the outcome one a bit more because you need that little bit of drive and motivation. Other times you need to pull that lever down and pull another lever a little bit stronger. And you know maybe that's that's the again the field you work in. If you work in individual or with teams, that's where you can kind of go. Actually, guys, we need to kind of pull slightly different levers. Yeah. So yeah, quite quite. Yeah, because like I'm I'm usually I'm I'm usually in front of a class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or an audience rather than than individual. Um, individual. I yeah. do individual stuff, but that's. And it's more about that. So I don't do any coaching. I do mentoring. Sure. 
Yeah, nice. Yeah. I like that. So yeah. um, one of these questions, and, and I know I've taken up a lot of your time, so I do want to respect, but I've got a couple more quick little questions I'd like oh, to no, ask you. If that's good. okay. Perfect. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. So um, I always like this, you know, in your experience, what are some of the key habits and behaviors that you think separate high achievers from the rest of the pack? You know, there's probably many, 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 but over the years, you've seen people performing at their best. What, what, what's some of the differentiators you notice? That's very interesting, isn't it? Because if I, I immediately go back to the science when you ask those questions, and I think about so um, if you want to be a super successful chief executive, what do you, you know, what are the things that you need to do? And and uh, it's interesting. Um, one of the things you need to do is to operate through positive emotional affect. So leading through positive emotion, and the other thing you need to do is be diligent. So that comes mm -hmm. back to your, so personal discipline and, and diligence. I think really my 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 experience, my knowledge, my activity is is um, uh, I was going to say all about. That's just not true. It's not all about, but it's significantly about this process of conditioning. So if if I'm if I am asked what's the quick tip, if somebody wants to become a great leader, what can I tell them to do on a daily basis? Um, it's to make sure that their self talk. Uh, is is bringing that about by congratulating themselves on everything they do, by talking about themselves as an actual or potential leader of success. It's about so if I know that that I have a a flaw that stands between me and my leadership potential, let's say um, I I lose my temper, then I would never say I lose my temper. I would say I don't always find it easy to stay calm. I like that. And and it's those it, it's those distinctions. So if you've got some demons, never name the demons. If you give a demon a name, you make it strong and give it power over you. And that is actually a spiritual and religious point of view that turns out to be true. Mm. I love that. That's really cool. I've, you know, kind of been little flickers of that over the years, but you put it in such an eloquent, really strong way. I like that, that, you know, you name that demon, it kind of, it gives it power. Again, I'll refer to the Stoics again. The Stoics talk about what you throw on the fire becomes the fire, you know, you, you feeding that. And I really like that. And it's kind of, you know, you can choose what you throw in that fire a lot of time. Okay. You need maybe the self-awareness of that initial inner voice. And then it's going, Oh, I notice I'm having dot, dot, dot thoughts. And then how we reframe it. Um, and that takes years to develop, doesn't it? That's not, not and again, it takes yeah, like, yeah. And, but again, it's like everything else. You have to condition it into yourself. Mm. But that thing about the big, you, what you throw on the fire becomes about that made me think of a, a this is just a funny story mm. of, um, on Hammersmith flyover in London. There was for a time, there was a huge um, poster there, which said, you're not in the traffic. You are the traffic. <laughs> That's cool. I like that. There's, there's a cool little link. I love how your brain works with that. That's awesome. And but just putting it back on yourself, Graham. So I've asked about kind of examples of high achievers and high performers. Where do you think you're the strongest? Is it is it that self-awareness? Is it the way you speak to yourself? Where do you think you've kind of succeeded in your life and, and what mental I, things have you done? I, I find, it, find it very, very challenging to distinguish one thing that's wonderful about me from all the others. Mm -hmm. actually, that, that, that's good. That's healthy. Please don't. No, that's just a joke. Don't you dare. Fair enough. I want that edited out, please. I'll take that out. Sorry, the way you say that, you're like super confident. I'm just like, trying to make you laugh. I can't so, pick one um, thing. I've got 100. Yeah. I'll take that so, out. So um, uh, that's a really telling question. Thank you. And you you can tell 
how telling it is because I so sidestepped it, didn't I? Through a one-liner. Uh, I think my um, uh, my ability to resonate trigger positive emotions in people. My persistence, uh, my courage, um, as in I'm not physically courageous in the way that people you work with are, um, but I'm behaviorally extremely courageous. I always tell the truth. I will find a kind way of telling a tough-to-hear truth, but I but I I always tell the truth. I think that's I think I think the the things the things that my clients and delegates say about me, which is nice, is that people find, you know, they they I will I will fire people up, right? So and I fire them up through science and through talking to them. I, I enjoy telling people about their potential and I enjoy I enjoy, you know, if there's some dude in the room like Court, right? Who's got a lot of talent, but he doesn't actually know how good he is. I have take great pleasure in over a cup of coffee saying saying to him, Do you know you're absolutely fucking awesome? Yeah. And you're 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 you you are only touching the surface of what you've got in there. So I love I love those truths, Tanya. I, I went to a um I went to an event, a, a, a sort of um, fundraising event at Twickenham, where there were, I don't know, 200 of us sitting around dinner tables, getting slowly pissed and eating wonderful food. And after an hour, uh, out came the England rugby team. And uh, I was I was well gone by this point. <laughs> well oiled. I was, I was very well oiled. And Joe Marler came up to our table and said a few nice things and uh, for those of you who don't know he is, that man is is a different species you he see is. him on the ground but in real life so i'm six two he's taller than me and he's got all that muscle right wow okay. he's an enormous man and um he came up and I was, I was pissed enough to actually just ask him for a selfie it's the only time i've ever done that in my life <laughs> and i just said to him thanks very much do you know do you mind if i say you are awesome nice and do you know what he did he actually took hold of me by the salt shoulders and looked at me straight in the eye and he said and so are you no ways how cool is that man what a story (laughs) and and he didn't know me from adam yeah yeah so that's what i like to do that's obviously what he likes to do it's like you know um, yeah, I love that story. Well, well, listen, I, I've sat here for the best part of an hour and actually just absorbed all your energy through the screen, man. So I, I've got about three hours of coaching tonight. And you know what? These people are just going to get the best of me right now. So thank you. <laughs> thank oh, you for giving me all that generous. positivity. No, it is genuine. Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. Listen, Graham, this has been an absolute pleasure. And I always like to leave people with um, a few signposts. So anyone that's listening, anyone that, that wants to check out your work, anyone that wants to follow you on social media or see your website, could you just give a little bit of a signpost and a shout out to to those areas please so you'll find me if you google me graham keen you'll 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 find me on uh, uh linkedin is probably the the the, the biggest presence mm-hmm. the website is the posit- <laughs> the positive profitability company um uh, you'll find you, you'll find me under that, but the the, the name should yeah. Get. Well, I, when I started doing research on you, I, you know, you Google your name and you come pretty much well, you're number one. So there we go. No, 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 no further research than that. 
<laughs> um, Graham, you've been an absolute star today. I look forward to getting this out into the world. Um, thank you so much for your time. And listen, I'd love to keep the conversation going just informally at certain times. And maybe in a future time, we could have a part two and go down a few more deep rabbit holes as well. I would love that. And thank you so much for asking me. I've enjoyed it. I've got quite a lot of energy off you as well. So so, uh, so my delegates tomorrow are going <laughs> to benefit from the Jesse effect. Awesome. <laughs> thank Great. You. Thank, thank you so much, Graham. Really appreciate Thanks it. Cheers.